Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, we chat with longtime Indigenous rights advocate Scott Clark of the Coast Salish Skullam Nation. Scott and our host, Am Johal, discuss how we can create systems of change for urban Indigenous people that produce positive and evidence-based results. Scott also talks about his work with Alive, or Aboriginal Life in Vancouver Enhancement Society, and the work they are doing to enhance and foster the social, economic, and cultural well-being of Indigenous peoples in Vancouver. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a very special guest, Scott Clark, uh, with us, who for a long time has been involved with the organization Alive, which is actually located right next to me. Uh, Scott isn't there right now, but they're sharing an office at 312 Main and are our uh, neighbors. So welcome, Scott. Uh, Thank you for having me, Am. Yeah, Scott, I'm wondering if you can begin by uh, introducing yourself a little bit. Certainly. Um, My settler name is Scott Clark. I am Coast Salish. I am a descendant of the Douglas Treaty Chuaitsin, signed in May 1850, uh, Southern Vancouver Island. I've spent the greater part of my working life, if you will, as an advocate for Indigenous peoples, principally the 80% of uh, Indigenous folks that are living off reserves and often in large cities. And so I've been doing that for, you know, 30 plus years and, um, and we're definitely in interesting times. Scott, when I first met you in the, the late 90s, you were involved with uh, United Native Nations leading that organization. I'm wondering if you can maybe we can begin with you sort of starting uh, with your arrival into that organization and some of the work that you were doing provincially, but also um, here in the downtown east side. Sure. Um, that was probably the uh, mid, early 1990s, 93, 94, 95-ish. I started to get involved in, in issues when I w- went back to college and um, started to learn about the stuff and started to come awake about what was going on and, and the patterns. And uh, as a young buck, uh, still in college, um, the sky was falling. I had to tell somebody. I went to the United Native Nations annual general meeting. Uh, I think it was in Williams Lake at the time, and I had to tell everybody, so I, I got nominated to run for the vice president of the United Nations, UNN, and I got elected now. <laughs> it was bizarre because uh, at that time I was quite young, and I didn't really understand how um, nonprofits worked and all that kind of stuff. So I, I literally walked right into the fire and um, having to learn how different government processes work, nonprofits, the structures, and all that kind of stuff, and find my, my, my way in that. And I did that for about four years, two terms as the vice president, and then I went on to become the president for about three years of the organization. Did a lot of really good work back then that was leading to some systems change uh, that sadly all that work fell off the, the radar when the United Native Nations had a lot of internal uh, bickering and the organization ultimately faltered in 2013. So then from that, we then created what's now known as the Northwest Indigenous Council, 
to replace the United Nations. And so the last, what's 2015, the last six years, we've just been trying to build up this this new organization and uh, find a way that we can get these issues addressed that uh, are deliberately all levels of government are being indifferent towards as though we don't exist, yet we're the ones that are filling their prisons, their child welfare industry, the opiate crisis, the homeless, all this stuff. It's, it's the officer population that are just continuing to feed into that that corporate colonial industry that uh, no level of government even wants to look at. So that's a lot I just shared with you, but uh, those are a lot of years of work. So I've been working both at the you know the local level through Aboriginal Life and Vancouver Enhancement Society, specifically on behalf of urban Indigenous populations. We are located in the downtown east side, which I call Ground Zero for uh, urban colonialism. But we also work through the Northwest Indigenous Council uh, on provincial issues, and we're affiliated with the Congress of Aboriginal Peoples, which is our national advocacy organization. And through that organization, I represent the Office of Indigenous Voices from the Northwest Coast, which which is called British Columbia, and advocate for our rights and titles at the federal and the international level through the United Nations. Yeah, so so Scott, I'm wondering if you can talk about the the formation of Alive, you know, when it formed and kind of where it came from in terms of what you were trying to advocate for. Well, Alive was actually, it wasn't my idea, it was Carol Brown, a longtime advocate, organizer through Ray Camp Community Center. She was the brainchild of that organization 12 years ago. And I got recruited to become one of the founding directors along with four other people. And I um, became the spokesperson of that organization and um, its president and then eventually its executive director, which I've now been doing for the past 10 years. We seek to support the largest population of Indigenous peoples living right here in in Vancouver. Most of us are are pipelined into the east side, more specifically the downtown east side. It's kind of like that's where we throw these people away. And so we've been working, uh, myself and and the organization, on how we decolonize the city of Vancouver, the parks board, the uh, school board, the Vancouver Police Department, Vancouver Public Life, all those institutions that systemically built up on the backs of uh, Indigenous peoples' oppression. So a lot of our work has been channeled on systems change, which isn't a really sexy item for media or general lay people, um, but ultimately who controls the decision-making and who controls the resources. And it's always going back to the the settler governments and nonprofits. And so it's, it's a, you know, we've been doing this so deeply and so intensely over that, that 12 years, but the systems change won't happen until we get legislation and policy implementation evaluated because the systems just don't want to give up that, that decision-making or that authority. So that's led us to uh, working principally over the last few years with young people. And Alive has a really dynamic team of young Indigenous folks that you get to see every now and again, and because we're often very busy out there doing the people's work, uh, very intelligent, very informed, very engaged. And so through that work with young folks, we have developed a policy document. Uh, I think it's the best in the country. 
hands down as it relates to officer of Indigenous populations. And we are um, advocating to, we have met with the police board, the city claims to want to meet with us, but we just keep doing that advocacy. And uh, we meet with the chiefs, we're meeting with the chiefs coming up pretty quick over on the island, southern Vancouver Island, where I'm from, to talk about how we can uh, unite our, our struggles and get some real positive evidence-based results because it's it's getting worse app uh, and mm-hmm. people don't know about it and if they do know a little bit about it they don't draw the links back to the ongoing canadian and settler government assimilation policy that's in full gear right now uh, scott uh, in the ways that uh government and say nonprofit organizations as well in the downtown east side, in as much as they've tried to shift policies, there's structural barriers in place. But what are your some of your critiques around the failure of um, these service organizations to uh, provide the appropriate services for Indigenous peoples? If you could sort of walk us through that critique of both government and nonprofits. Yeah, it's a little bit bigger than that, Am. Um I, I don't consider myself a Canadian citizen. I am a Coast Salish citizen. I'm a Douglas Treaty uh, descendant. Uh, those are where my rights are. Uh, those rights are continuously being violated by the by the Canadian state and its settler forms of governments and nonprofits. Uh, so it's not my job to fix Canada. I'm not interested in fixing it. But the reality is that when Canada became a country uh, back in 1867, they allocated a funding allocation model where the the feds keep 50 cents of our tax dollar, the province gets 42 cents of that tax tax dollar, and the city gets 8 cents. And over the last, particularly the last 30 years, there's been a serious devolution of responsibility to provinces and to cities and to band councils. And through that devolution process, it's really been clawbacks because it's it, it's been cutting the amount of resources going down, but giving it to those other governments, including First Nations, who are happy to take that money. But it doesn't change the systems. The systems are still not functioning. The funding model is messed up. The, the ministries at the federal, the provincial, the civic, they don't talk to each other, let alone, uh, I mean, at the civic level or the provincial level. They don't even talk to each other there, let alone to each other. And so they use the nonprofit service uh, organizations. Those are extensions of government. Those nonprofit service agencies are accountable to government, to their contribution agreements. And um, therefore, the devolution process is just seen as reconstitute colonialism at the neighborhood level. You know, I don't blame, I, I understand where the nonprofits are, the service providers, but, and a lot of, there's a lot of good people in there. I don't care how good you are. Uh, you're, you're confined by, by contract law. You're, con- you're confined by the contribution agreements, those type of colonial deliverables, which only perpetuates the colonialism, the industry of colonialism around our, our men, our women, our elders, our young people, the incarceration rates, the push-out rates from uh, schools, that whole nasty thing. And, and that's the problem. And we have solutions. And ultimately, we don't need the settler states and the settler nonprofits in our lives. Like, they need to get out of our lives. Like, I don't know why it's 2021. Hello. There's been enough inquiries, enough reports, enough everything. We don't need more reports. 
spending untold millions of dollars telling us how racist or colonial they are. What we need is action and to transfer the resources and the authority to us as Indigenous folks so we can resolve our issues based on our culture, our values, our principles, and, and we start taking care of our own. Uh, Scott, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit as Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations here in, in Vancouver have started to develop a closer relationship uh, with the city of Vancouver, and also um, in the context of Indigenous-led organizations, nonprofits that are doing some of the service delivery. I'm wondering how you situate Alive's work in relation to the local nations and those organizations. Well, in order to understand the the basis, and this is really important for folks to understand, you know, um, you've been around a while, so have I, a lot of new people coming up, and a lot of people that have been around probably too long, like myself. Uh, but where do you start is the question. And it's always that question that, that the, the mainstream dialogue or narrative doesn't want to start. I start with a Coast Salish nation. That's where I start. Our nation, i.e. my hat, Coast Salish law, our nation has been in existence over 13,000 years. It's only been recent that uh, the British and Spanish uh, came in here and started to do what they did to us. So that's where I start. What is the Coast Salish nation? Well, if you look at a map, you'll see that we're made up of about just about 60 uh, First Nations on the Canadian side and uh, almost the same amount on the American side. We're probably a population of about uh, 400,000 people. And uh, we've been divided with the 49th parallel. The federal, when, when British Columbia uh, joined Confederation in Canada in 1871, and then Canada created the Indian Act in 1876, they had a, a lengthy debate about how they were going to organize the 34 indigenous tribes on the northwest coast. The last major landmass on Turtle Island to be mapped out, by the way last place to be seriously colonized by those other forces. So this history doesn't get talked about. People don't know. People don't know whose land they're on. They just don't know that. Learn that stuff because it'll make you a better human being. And you'll be able to know, be able to deconstruct colonial narratives. But anyways, so that's where I come from. Uh, my family, I come from a village, I said earlier, from Chuaitzen, where Douglas Treaty, that's been turned into an Indian Act Band Council, because back in the day, the feds were just saying, how do we organize these 34 tribal linguistic nations on the Northwest Coast? And they decided that they were going to create Indian Act Band Councils. So they took the 34 tribal linguistic nations on the West Coast and turned us into 204 Indian Act Band Councils, also known as First Nations for the deliberate purpose of dividing and conquering us. Now, there's been some um, some real positive work being done by, by some of our tribal nations on the Northwest Coast. Uh, I look at the Gitsan, the Wet'suwet'en, the Haida. Uh, there's a lot of our, uh, the Niska, Telpans. Um, uh, uh, they're bringing back their tribal nations. <laughs> Not us, uh, the Coast Salish, we are so divided. Uh, as I shared with you. So when I think about Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, yeah, they're one of the 21 dialects of the Coast Salish nation, 100%, but we are part of a much bigger, broader nation, and that's the Coast Salish nation. 
And I've heard bureaucrats and others, uh, city bureaucrats and others uh, talk about, oh, how great it is that Musqueam and Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh are working so well together, MST. And, you know, think about that for a second. Like, why weren't they working together before? Why is it since BC became into confederation, the Indian Act came in, why are all these villages divided? Why is it now they're just starting to come together? And that's where you could spend some good time doing some research or academics could about uh, the dynamics, the corporate colonial uh, model of divide and conquer that's, that's happening. And so in my broader view, these band councils or First Nations, particularly the Coast Salish, I won't see it in my lifetime, ma'am, but I want to see us unite as one. And if we ever united as one nation here in what we call Canada and then down in Washington State, we'd be hands down the most powerful group, indigenous or otherwise, uh, in, in North America. Because just look at the land, the ocean, the mountains, everything that we have in our territories. So that's how I put the, the band councils in that context. And um I mean, when they were in court, I mean, they were in court fighting over Kitsilano 20 years ago or whatever it was. And they're all spending millions of dollars in the courtroom, like Musqueam, Squamish, I think it was over Kitsilano area. They're all fighting. And you look in the courtroom and they're all family. There's aunts and uncles and cousins across the road, all paying these these, uh, settler lawyers millions of dollars to fight over who owns that land. And then they eventually had an, I guess they had a settlement and, and MST has been working together quite well since then, but, but they have a responsibility. Uh, those band councils have a responsibility to the large urban indigenous population. We have indigenous people from all over Turtle Island that are living here and traditionally um, not, not Indian act style uh, band councils, but traditionally our way is that, as Coast Salish people, it's our responsibility to ensure that uh, we welcome and we host all other folks that are in our territories and we uphold that responsibility by actively supporting our families and our communities and ultimately our nation. And a lot of folks just can't get their heads wrapped around that because we're so wrapped up in this uh, neo-colonial exercise, what they call reconciliation, which is when we look back on that term uh, in 10 years, 20 years, it's just going to say, this isn't reconciliation. This is, this is reconstituted colonialism. And sadly, um, they use service, Aboriginal service providers, uh, the governments do as a means to say they've consulted with us. And uh, this is just another form of assimilation and genocide. But we got a lot of young people coming up, a lot of educated young people. More of our folks are, they're solid. These kids are really, really intelligent. They're committed and, and we're witnessing. And we saw it before the pandemic. And before the pandemic, we witnessed the Canada get shut down. Uh, we witnessed a whole bunch of youth and allies, indigenous youth over at the legislative building and occupied the building. And this country was shut down. That was just before the pandemic. And here we are now. Uh, and I went over there with our youth and, and we did our thing. And here we are now with Ferry Creek, the, the so-called NDP government. It's just another colonial corporate entity. 
I mean, Jesus Christ, it's 1% of the forest, ancient forest is left on Vancouver Island. And this NDP government cannot even stop them from cutting down that last 1% of ancient growth. Only 3% of ancient growth is left in BC. They're still cutting these trees down. And they've already arrested over 1,100 people, if not 1,200 time uh, the, today, right? And then we got the stuff going up in, in Wet'suwet'en territory where the gas companies are going in there and, and terrorizing with the RCMP support to build their pipelines. They didn't get the free prior informed consent of the traditional clan system government not talking band councils, not talking service providers. I'm talking the Wet'suwet'en and the Gitsam's uh, inherent right to self-determination as peoples of the world. And the five clan chiefs of that territory said, no, you're not coming into our territory. You did not get our consent. Uh, honor your own Supreme Court of Canada uh, Delganuth decision, which tells you that you have to deal with the traditional government's of these tribal nations. And even though they won that decision back in, I think it was 97, Dogama, they're still doing this shit. They're still going in there and like the violence these cops are to RCMP. Like, we need to get rid of the RCMP. They shouldn't be part of British Columbia anymore. They should be gone. And there needs to be a serious movement about the, the terrorist tactics that these people, the violence that they're doing to these, these people, they're destroying their vehicles, pushing them over cliffs, breaking their bones, intimidating them. The RCMP needs to leave this, this place and this province in, in concert with our people need to look at a new provincial, if you will, I don't even want to use the word police protective force to uphold and honor, on built on the uh, principles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. These people are, are, they carry the water for the corporatocracy. They carry the water for them. They do all that. Uh, you know, as an urban Indigenous person, we all know how the police are. We've all been beaten by them or terrorized by them or targeted by them. It's, it's just part of the normal culture if you're, you know, if you live... Um, anywhere close to, you know, what the state wants, what the state wants they're going to take. We saw that up at Gustafsson Lake, Iprawash, Oka. Uh, now we're seeing it at Ferry Creek, Unistoten, the TMX. And, you know, it's, and, and the young people, <laughs> every day almost am right now. They're blocking the bridges and they're blocking the ports and they're doing all this other stuff, right? It's only a matter of time. And it's happening now, I think that we're going to see another shutdown of this country. And they can ignore our people. They can ignore uh, their government's fiduciary responsibility, their treaty responsibility. They can continue to, to, to try that genocidal assimilation policy that they're doing. But our people aren't stupid now. They've got social media. They're educated. They're in the front lines. They witness this, the child apprehension, all that nasty stuff. And we're starting to witness our people stand up. And allies just need to know how to be allies. There's a lot of non-Indigenous allies out there that they're not allies. They're, I call them abusers. And, and uh, we see a lot of that, too. But times are changing. And I, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling good about our people because on the Indigenous side, we're a very young population. Got a very high fertility rate. We're getting more of our kids are being able to stand on their own, go through college and university or, you know, get involved in the struggle one way or another. So, you know, we need to unite our people 
And we need to have the common objective, which is to get rid of the Indian Act and the federal government's um, what we call the 1969 2.0 white paper process, which is yet again uh, a simulation or genocide, if you will. Scott, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to uh, the work that some of the young people are doing out of Alive. I've got the report, Our Place, Our Home, Our Vision. Uh, I've had a chance to read it. It's a wonderfully written report, really thorough, um, uh, excellent framing, and with really practical, positive suggestions on, on, a, on a way forward. I'm wondering if you can speak to, I, I see um, uh, someone next door getting ready to do a podcast recording. Uh, so I see lots of uh, activity happening. I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what the, the youth at uh, Alive are up to. Absolutely. Um, hopefully, um, you can link that that report to this thing so people can read yeah, it. Um, over, I guess, three years ago, four years ago, uh, Alive partnered with a number of non-Indigenous organizations, and we got some funding to do uh, reach out to youth, Indigenous, non-Indigenous youth in East Vancouver. Long story short, after all various forms of engagement uh, with workshops, uh, Everything, you name it, festivals, everything. We came up with that policy document. We consulted over 2,000 youth from East Vancouver. The policy document is very pragmatic. It's it, it's the best document as it relates to real systems change from the ground up. And um, it covers nine policy areas. Ultimately, the, the main one is urban Indigenous self-government and how to get there. And so it deals with the issues around recreation, education, housing, homelessness, environment, climate change, uh, all economic development, all those things. But it all does come under the banner of uh, self-government, urban indigenous self-government. And uh, so we've been working on that. We're coming up with a second policy document because the young folks have been they got a committee of 10 indigenous youth, 10 non-indigenous youth. They meet monthly. Uh, we do all kinds of really, they, they love it. They, they just love it. I mean, we just came back from Laquaman territory after eight days of, of, of teaching the young people um, that we brought from here over to, to uh, Victoria. And we, we mixed them in with a bunch of uh, on-reserve youth and mentors. Kids learned how to do spear spear fishing, smoking salmon, jarring salmon, learning how to play lahau learning protocol about being welcomed into the territory by the, the chief and council on the work. We get all kinds of great stuff. So those, those young folks are learning exponentially what it means to be in Kosevich territory and building up their skills and their confidence. And uh, we're coming up with, we're actually heading back to the island uh, Halloween. We're going to be hosting a trick or treaty at the BC legislative buildings. And we'll be inviting in all the local, what we call the CMs, the, the hereditary leaders, spokespersons of the families and the villages and all the other folks. And we're going to just have a two-hour event over there. And ultimately, what it comes down to, Am, is um, we don't have any friends in government. We just don't. And uh, that doesn't stop us from doing the work. And what the work is now telling us is that we need something called the Coast Salish Authority Resource Board. And, and that would look at all the resources that are spent federally, provincially, civically, uh, 
foundations and pool those resources through a Coast Salish authority and then bring in the appropriate folks that know the communities, know what's needed, and then develop a, a, an approach that we can get those resources out uh, to where our people need them uh, so that we can close the gaps. And, and the gaps are terrible. And I, I don't need to tell you that. It's just, you know, 30% of the prison population indigenous, you know, 62% of the children in care indigenous, 45% of the homeless population indigenous. Like, Houses not by design. And who are they using, right? These governments. They're using the, the flipping service providers who can't fight back because if they fight back, they lose their contracts. So they deliberately ignore alive. And as does the province, as does the feds. But we keep doing the work. We, we're keeping them. We're, we're, we've got a whole bunch of events planned over the next several months where we're going to be refining the documents for a new model of urban indigenous self-government that honors the Coast Salish law and traditions. Scott, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what some of your activities you're going to be involved with live in the, in the future. Well, we're actually just going to be, well, obviously we have that, the, the, we call it the Youth Implementation Committee. So we have those 10 youth, indigenous, 10 non-indigenous, we meet monthly. From that, we design uh, or we design activities that support the young people's uh, in a comprehensive approach. Like, what are things that young people want to see? Uh, what activities can we do with them that can build their their knowledge base and make them better citizens on Coast Salish territory? So, some of the activities I just said, we just came back from from uh, Songhees. After eight days, we're, we're looking at going up to other, or Ferry Creek. We took the youth up there so they could witness firsthand what was happening there, uh, introducing them to elders, uh, to mentors. We've got a bunch of other activities. Like in the summertime, when they released the pandemic stuff, we fed over 9,000 people with salmon and halibut, clams and and bannock and fried bread and signed up a whole bunch of members sharing our documents talking about you know what they can do as urban indigenous peoples how we can start organizing so we can collectively get our issues on the table in a respectful way and so we are we've got a whole bunch of activities that we're going to be discussing uh with the youth but we also right beside you am we have our brand new podcast studio I think your crew is going to help our, our crew so we can get that thing fully activated and then let the young people and other urban indigenous peoples use that facility so that they can amplify their voices around whatever it is that they find meaningful and uh, engaging around empowerment and not charity. There's too much charity going on, uh, but we're really looking at sustainable empowerment models that really support our youth and non-indigenous and indigenous to deconstruct the power narrative that we're provided with by the colonial corporate governments and corporatocracy, and that these young people have real voices, they have real concerns, they have real issues, change happens in their neighborhoods, and um, and these young folks are, 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 I'm blown away, I'm absolutely blown away by they're, you know, they're out there being interviewed by the media. I think you, I think you even did one with them. Uh, they're publicly speaking about missing, murdered Indigenous women, girls, the Truth and Reconciliation, the colonial version of UNDRIP that was adopted by Canada, the province, 
and the city of Vancouver. We've had our youth meeting with the Vancouver Police Board, uh, with the mayor, and following up with them, saying that we've got to stop this nonsense. We've got, we've got to stop this silos, this apartheid, uh, this genocide. And you can't, you can ignore us, but we're not going to go away. You can ignore us, but we're not going to go away. And that's, that's the work these young folks are doing. I told you we're going to be going back to the island very shortly to go do our trick or treaty over at the legislative building, because as you know, and as most folks should know, all of the, the lands in what we call the Northwest, what Northwest of, of Turtle Island have never been ceded. They've never been conquered. They've never been given to British Columbia or Canada. It's ours. And we never gave up our governments. In fact, what we're seeing is a resurgence of it right now. And our job, really my job as a part of that long sort of, is to pass on what I've learned, what I can share, and and ensure that, uh, you know, these young people, when they go to the table, they're not there based on some charity model. They're there based on defend, exercising their responsibility to defend their rights, their family's rights, and the nation's rights. And so that's sort of where these young folks are doing. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. I'm wondering if there's anything you'd, you'd like to add. Yeah, yeah you know, the, the big thing is this. Um, you know, I would say that the people need to know the history of the land and the history of the people of the Coast Slaves. That's where you live. And, uh, you know, your ancestors didn't do this to us, but you're living off the, the, the privilege of that oppression. You learn the history of our people. You learn the history of our land. You learn the history of contact. You learn the history of the Hudson Bay Company, the Douglas Treaty, the colonies, when British Columbia. Learn that history because our rights are protected in Canada's constitution through the British North America Act in the 1763 Royal Proclamation. We never give up our land. And the Canadian government doesn't want people to know about the 1763 Royal Proclamation. But every court case that we win at the Supreme Court of Canada is based on the Royal Proclamation of 1763. So if you don't know about that, I encourage you folks to, to learn that history because I think, um, well, you know, I think that knowledge will make you a better human being and how you can really be an ally um, to change the narrative that, that the governments and the media are playing right now. So I'll, I'll stop there and I just, I put my hands up to you in appreciation uh, for giving me this opportunity to share some of uh, my thoughts and some of the work that we're doing. And we're going to be busy. We're going to be very busy in the next few months. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us on Below the Radar. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Scott Clark. To learn more about Alive Society, their Our Place, Our Home, Our Vision report, and more, check out the show notes for details and links. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.